Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. A long-awaited report into the Office of Students landed on our desk this week. Fresh quality investigations published and we're talking about care experience students today. It's all coming up. Ultimately, that's what a board should be doing. And, and if they can't basic do it for them, principles of governance. Governance, absolutely. And if they can't do it for themselves, then how are they going to go around expecting other people to do it and to do it well? So... Welcome to The Monkey Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Monkey's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me with their boots firmly on the ground this week, as usual, three fabulous guests. In Birmingham, it's Smita Jamdar, Partner and Head of Education at Shakespeare Martin. Oh, Smita, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week is celebrating uh, the 30th work anniversary of a very close and dear friend and colleague, Joanna Forbes. Lots of cocktails, uh, absolutely fabulous time had by all. In South London, it's Richard Rabner, Director of the UPP Foundation. Richard your heart of the week? Uh, well, I was very fortunate to be at the Oval yesterday to watch Ben Stokes smash an England record, 182 off 120 odd balls, and see them beat New Zealand comfortably. And if if I'm grumpy this morning, it's got nothing to do with being at the cricket yesterday. <laughs> and somewhere in the wilds of the southwest of England, it's David Kernahan, DK to you and me, Deputy Editor at Wonky. DK, your heart of the week, please. It is the start of the British basketball season. I'm really excited to see the Bristol. Flyers uh, build on their stellar performance last season. So we start the week with a big RSC report into the Oxford students. Uh, Richard, give us the highlights, please. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So the House of Lords Industry and Regulators Committee has concluded its inquiry into the work of the Office for Students. And the title of the report is called Must Do Better, which I think is a gives a clear indication of the committee's view of the OFS. And you can't really sugarcoat this. The report, I think, has been is pretty damning across a really variety of issues. It says there's a lack of strategic oversight of the sector, particularly around financial sustainability, a lack of transparency over OFS priorities, why they are focusing on certain issues within the within their remit over others. Micro manages the sector, poor and overly hostile relations with its stakeholders, providers, QIA and so on. But equally that the student voice is not really listened to either, which was of course ultimately the purpose of the office for students. It has a high regulatory burden on providers, repetition with other regulators and too bureaucratic. And of course, it says it's too close to government, not perceived really as an independent regulator. And of course, there's lots to get into here. And Smita and DK will have really strong view, views on this as, as, as well as you, Mark. But my overarching feeling when reading the report is that while there are some personality issues at play here, it's really to do with the fact that the system isn't functioning. Instead of being an effective regulator, it's now sort of overly balanced into being purely sort of a policy lever for the government. And I don't, I don't think that it's if there's an incoming government or a change of government in, in a year or so's time, it's not something that's going to be really easy to resolve because, of course, it, then it goes into the question of institutional autonomy, what levers can government play and so on. But um, anyway, look, looking forward to discussion with all you guys on this. Right. Fascinating. Where to start, Smita? I think, you know, what, from your point of view, what is that balance between the kind of the cultural problems with RFS and the, and the regulatory regime and the kind of the, the, the system and the structure that, like, like Richard said? Because when I was reading it, it felt to me that 
you know, there's there's basically nothing really that wrong with Hero and the framework that the whole thing is set up under, although there's probably some tweaks that could be made. But it's the way it's been implemented by the government and by the people who've been put in charge of, of RFS. Or am I looking at it backwards? No, I, I don't think you are looking at it backwards with one caveat. Um, and, my, and the one caveat is that any, as we've seen over the last few years, it's almost impossible to predict what's coming next. Uh, you know, the world is deeply volatile and uncertain and all the rest of it. So um, when you set up a regulatory framework that can't then react quickly to things like the cost of living crisis, it can't pivot to say, you know, whatever else we thought was important, we now need to focus on the massive impact this is having on students and institutions and so on, or, or you know, the, 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 the sort of steep decline in university finances. So any regulatory system that can't do that is problematic in, in its structure. We've got to come up with something that's capable of pivoting more quickly. Um, but beyond that, because the uh, nature of the duties that the Office for Students has under HERA is so broad, it ought to be possible for um, sensible choices to be made in a sensible way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I think the big fundamental flaw with HERA was that it was set up to regulate a market. And I don't think there are many people anymore who are really interested from a policy perspective in that market. There are lots of mm. other things they're worried about. And so it's constantly hitting up against this is a market regulator, but really what's important now isn't aren't necessarily the things that you know relate to it being a market that- yeah you, you don't hear you don't hear the talk about that so much it was, uh, I, I seem to remember in the early days the idea was about encouraging competition and all that kind of yes. stuff but the the rhetoric has moved quite a, a long way away from that hasn't it it, it really has and and you know the it, it, sort of aside from this report i mean this is you know some of the stuff that's coming out now about the ofs's approach to partnerships and stuff that is again you know very not promoting more competition you know there are concerns about how, how those things um run so yeah i agree i think that the the language of the market has is, is almost consigned to history and we've now got essentially regulation which is trying to achieve certain standards within you know within a fairly static pool of providers mm. and, and that leads me on to my next question dk which is about you know the the the, the, the house of lords report basically accuses rfs of, of being asleep at the wheel when it comes to financial sustainability of the sector and and makes the case that the sector's finances are in you know are in significant peril and it just i mean i mean and the language about this it's, it's pretty strong um different people who have different views about the state of the sector's finances but i guess you know to what extent should rfs be doing something about this or you know is is there has that space filled has that space been filled in where if it's no longer there to encourage competition should it be there to encourage the, the stability in the way that hefke used to and you know is the framework there out to do that or are they just choosing not to so one of the big questions the report raised is precisely that who has the responsibility to look at the overall financial position and stability and sustainability of the sector um it's not often you can make this comparison but the office for students approach is quite similar to the ucu approach in that they claim the sector's got a um a load of money on aggregate um even though the office for students is slightly more able to point out that there are some places that are genuinely struggling the thing is this is a gap this is a void there is literally nobody looking out for the overall sustainability of the higher education sector as a national innovation infrastructure, as a national skills infrastructure. And if you think about the way in which the government's having problems with 
with other areas of infrastructure, with school buildings, with the water and sewage systems, for instance, you can spot quite quickly that a pattern is emerging. We're not really looking at the sector overall as something that is of value to the institution. I just also wanted to make the point that there's nothing in this report, I don't think, that is specifically damning about the way uh, the Office for Students is doing what it has been set up to do. I think um, the sector does need a strong regulator. Students do need somebody powerful in their corner to stand up for their interests when they are getting, as in a few cases, they are getting a poor quality experience in higher education. And uh, providers need somebody to keep them on the straight and narrow to make sure they're doing the right thing um, by students and by the task. The um, taxpayers, although the um, recommendation about a review of the way higher education is financed is a gift to anyone that is writing a political manifesto for the next election at this point, um, it is something that very clearly needs to happen. I think the strongest recommendations, the recommendations that have uh, will have an immediate impact will be about the way the Office of Students is run and managed and the way in which it, and in particular senior staff within the Office of Students, relate to the sector and other stakeholders. I think that's the ones we're going to see immediate fireworks on. Yeah, so, so I just sort of pick up on DK's point around financial sustainability and there being a gap around the national infrastructure which obviously i completely agree with but the other missing piece on this and i'm you know it's very obvious for me to say this is around place and around the impact that those institutions obviously have on place and if there is financial instability how that then has a bigger impact on the on on wider sort of towns and cities and communities that that, that we clearly want to be thriving up and down this country um and there's it's a, it's a really sort of missing piece isn't it in in the whole in the whole jigsaw and the picture, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, the other, the other thing that I would say is, I think that the, the sort of changing, more interventionist nature of the OFS in, in 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 recent times, my perception is it's to do with the fact that the government feels, or this particular government feels, that it's lost control of the system with the sort of decisions that previous Conservative and coalition governments have made to try and engineer that market-based system. They don't feel they have enough levers to be able to direct government policy for it, and which is why it's sort of transforming the OFS into, instead of being an effective independent regulator, into sort of a le- just purely a lever of government policy. And, and you know, there's obviously a debate around institutional autonomy, but any government that is funneling significant amount of public resource into the system, as it would do, does have a huge stake in how that system operates and works. And so, I, you know, it's leading me to think, and obviously I'm, I don't claim to be an expert here, that we do need to have an entity which is a proper regulator of the system, as DK noted, putting students at the heart of the system, that student voice, making sure that their priorities are heard where, where quality is lacking and so on. But there does need to be a lever, which probably is not the Department for Education, that can shape shape policy in a way that any elected government feels that it needs to do so. And I mean, surely there's a way of doing that that isn't, in the words of the, the report, arbitrary, overly controlling and unnecessarily combative, which um, I know a lot of people in the sector, it's the sort of, the sort of thing I hear a lot from people in the sector in their, in their criticisms of, um, uh, of the regulator. I think one of the interesting side comments almost in this report was the lack of any overarching higher education strategy from the government. Yeah. Because the way this ought to work is they set the strategy and then an independent regulator 
decides how best to regulate to achieve those strategic goals. Um, and I think what's happened is because there is no over overarching strategy, because we've had so many different uh, ministers on, uh, and so on, and because nobody quite agrees within government what higher education should be for, that bit is lost and all you've got is a series of interventions and the only way they can then be implemented is through direction rather than through that broader strategic approach and I know that of course Wales is a much smaller um, higher education uh, market and I'm not using that in the competitive sense I just mean scope of it um, but if you look at the difference between the approach there in terms of you know establishing duties to promote and foster certain environments in which higher education can do the things that government wants it to that's quite different to the approach we've got here and i think if we don't fix that strategic piece it will always be a series of discrete interventions that don't really allow for autonomy allow for you know stability allow for long term planning yeah so this is the difference and this came up in the report as well i mean ceta as it is being set up now has actual duties actual requirements things that it has to do this the, 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 the new regulation the language here again and again yeah, yeah, sorry, the um, new regulator in Wales. Um, the language in HERA about what the OFS does, it's all has regards to. The, the Office of Students has to have regard to a number of things, including institutional autonomy, including uh, the advice and guidance of ministers, and, and a, a whole number of other things as well. And, I mean, one of the criticisms that came of the government and the way the system has been set up has been all these things that the Office of Students has to have regard to. There's not really a way of seeing in what precise way it's actually balanced these different priorities. There's not a way to question that or say, okay, we don't really see how this message was your duty to have regard to uh, institutional autonomy because you've done this, which seems to cut directly across institutional autonomy. Um, so... One of the things that might hopefully come up with that is a couple of little tweaks to HERA to make it a bit clearer what the requirements of OFS are actually to do and the way in which it needs to keep all of these um, differing policy goals and strategic understandings in mind as it does the work of regulation. Hmm. And I'm interested then in, in kind of what's the what's the ceiling and what's the floor then on for OFS going forward. Um, I'm I'm guessing the government isn't going to take a look at this report and go, oh yeah, that's a fair cop. You know, maybe we'll uh, find a find a more independent chair. Maybe we'll um, rethink the whole the whole thing. Um, but at the same time, um, it seems unlikely that you know all of these criticisms are going to go unanswered indefinitely, particularly with an election coming up. And I, I think that. You know that could be a slight trigger for the for the change. Um, but yes, Indeed. Smita, what's the what what where 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 do you put where do you where do you put OFS's future? Okay, so I think um, it's going to take a lot to dismantle this, and I don't think anyone's got the political appetite to do that. I think you know we've we've heard from from um, Labour that change is coming for the OFS, but that could be achieved by a different you know set of expectations from ministers as to how mm. they conduct themselves. Yeah, and a new chair, and a new a new chair, you know, so on. But the the other group that I think we need to look to now is the board of the OFS. Um, they're responsible ultimately for its direction, its strategy, its culture, its reputation. Um, and if I was on that board, I would want to see pretty immediately something quite wide ranging and uh, detailed about how these the things that are within the OFS's gift to control. How is it going to address them? 
Um, I think that you know that 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 to me is is something that could happen immediately without needing anybody else to to get involved. And I'm I'm I'd be really alarmed if that doesn't happen because yeah. ultimately that's what a board should be doing. And and if they it's can't just basic do it principles them, of governance, governance absolutely. Yeah. And if they can't do it for themselves, then how are they going to go around expecting other people to do it and to do it well? So that's that's well, where I'll be looking watch, first. Isn't it? This is are they going to go into the bunker and say, well, we're just under attack here from left, right and centre? Or, you know, is the board going to say, you know, yes, there's some, there's, you know, we, we need to see some action on, on this going beyond, you know, just the latest big reset of the relationship yes, between RFS and the sector, which we've had about four or five times and, and, and still results in this, you know, in still this kind of massive criticism. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely what we should see now. Uh, slight, I, I take a slightly more sceptical stance on this, unfortunately. I think there was a piece that DK wrote, an excellent piece that DK wrote, of course, on one key summarising this. The, the only thing that I'd really take issue with was DK said it was an important and influential uh, report from a parliamentary select committee or parliamentary committee, I should say. Um, it's clearly an important report, but will it be influential? Um, I, you know, many, many years ago, I worked as a lowly MPs researcher, and I have to say that these reports were not taken that seriously at that time. Um, and whether, you know, clearly this, this will give sort of evidence and heft to an incoming or a change of government if they wanted to, you know, make big change with the RFS, as Smita mentioned. Do I think this current government or this iteration of the RFS will take it as seriously as it should do or, and there'll be significant change over the course of the year? I think it's going to clearly reinforce some things which they're trying to change over relationships with providers around sort of bureaucratic burden, the repetition between different sort of regulators, which Robert Halfen has obviously talked about and so on. But but in terms of that bigger shift and that bigger cultural change, I, I, I'm a bit more sceptical. And, you know, they may perceive it as quite a political piece of work that is sort of um, taken the views of providers over the views of others. Okay, so the usual practice with these reports is the government is expected to respond to them within uh, two months. Um, overwhelming majority of parliamentary reports from committees, this is what happens. You get it within two months. The thing to watch will be education questions in the Commons. As far as I can see, I don't think that comes up until after the conference thing. But you know, any time anyone is going to ask um, ministers about higher education or higher education quality or regulation in the next few months, they are going to bring up this report. It is ammunition to anybody who thinks that the government has been asleep at the wheel when it comes to higher education regulation, which is a view held by many inside and outside the sector. Um, with it being an independent report and with the overwhelming majority being either um, independent peers or government peers, um, this is a report that can't be just written off as uh, political mudslinging. And uh, given the range of evidence it's taken, including substantially from students, it can't be written off as producer interest. It is a difficult ball for the government to play at this point. Um, it will be interesting to see what they do next and the answers that they come up to the questions that they're going to face in all kinds of forums as a result of this report. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Martin Smith, Head of Policy Lab at the Wellcome Trust. This week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the fantastic news that the UK will finally be associating to the Horizon Europe programme. It's great for the UK, it's great for the EU, and it's great for science itself. 
For researchers on the ground applying for funding, it'll feel pretty similar to when the UK was a member of the EU. They'll soon be eligible to lead projects and receive ERC awards, and they should start applying for them straight away. Research managers should check out the latest guidance on which calls the new status will apply to. And for the wonks like me, there's some fun details in my blog about what the agreement looks like and why it's not quite the same as membership. I finish up with making a plea to make sure that everyone makes the most of this opportunity now that we've got it. It's been a huge sector effort to get this over the line. I've personally worked on this issue for more than seven years, so I will definitely be celebrating, even if it took somewhat longer than expected. Okay, so DK, there's been some quality investigations finally reporting. Um, talk us through them. Okay, so this is the first selection of reports from the boots on the ground investigations, the first load that looked at primarily at business schools in large providers. Uh, we've never really had a list of these in regards that we don't know which ones the Office of Student has been looking at. Uh, we obviously have some ideas. There's been a lot of talk in the sector. Uh, the remaining six, we understand, are going to emerge in the coming weeks. And then at some point after the reports are out, we're going to get a regulatory judgment based on the reports. Uh, so this is interesting for a number of reasons. The most important one is the first time we've seen this. It's the first time we've seen the Office for Students do quality assurance inspections. There's been a lot of criticism out there that we don't really know the methodology, we don't really know what they're looking for, the basis on which they decide who to investigate and who not to investigate. Uh, so the primary interest here, although obviously these are of interest to people at the business schools concerned at the University of Bolton, where the assessment team did find an area of concern linked to a low staff-student ratio, making it difficult for students to get the contact with staff that they want, and at London South Bank University Business School, where the Office for Students did not find any areas of concern that they reported on. Um, we don't know what the regulatory action on either of these is going to be yet, but we do now have an understanding of the process and the way these things work. Yeah, so that's it. it is it's a sort of bit of a process story and bit of a bit of a political one, isn't it? I mean, Smita, the if you're forgiven for being confused as a as a kind of observer. Who manages, who's responsible for quality assurance in England exactly? And exactly how is it, you know, how how does it all happen? I mean, are, you know, is it, is the primary tool that RFS uses, um, these kind of big investigations and now the, and the reports into them, most of which aren't published publicly so far? Um, or is it TEF? Um, you know, wh where is quality? Who, do, who's, who's in charge? It's an excellent question, Mark. And I don't, I, I don't think we've yet, um, seen how all this hangs together because um, obviously the pr it's the provider who's registered. So, you know, it's the institution. You've then got these quality assessments which are made on individual courses and often on quite narrow parts of individual courses. So they might be looking at, you know, support for academic misconduct or that, that kind of stuff. What does that tell you about the quality of the provider as a whole? What does that even tell you necessarily about the quality of the course as a whole when you're looking at such granular points of it? How does that then fit with um, things like the TEF? You know, it'll be very interesting to see whether we get providers who are both uh, criticised under the, the boots on the ground inspections reports and then receive good outcomes in TEF because they're looking at slightly different things. Um, 
we've obviously then got all sorts of other information about universities that students access, league tables, so on and so on. And I don't, I'm not, I don't understand as somebody who's reasonably well informed about these things, what, what is the priority here and how are the OFS going to take the findings in the reports they've just published? and translate that to an assessment of quality at the provider. They've not been clear about it. It's nowhere published. And I certainly can't infer it from what I've seen. So I think it's a bit of a mess, really. And if, if you were running a university, it's a genuine question. How would you know whether you're going to get one of these investigations? What are they looking for? Well, this is a massive issue. And, 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 and you know, certainly uh, at least one vice chancellor has blogged about this, that um, they, they regularly refer to what they describe as regulatory intelligence. So, you know, if you look at their annual report, that says we selected these providers based on regulatory intelligence. We don't know what that intelligence is. We don't know whether it's pure data. We don't know whether it's concerns that have been raised with them. It could be any and all of those things. But because you don't know what concerns triggered these investigations and why they focused on the particular areas they did, it's quite difficult to sort of form a mental picture of what it's telling you. So when you get something like a clean bill of health in this that looked at a certain number of areas, we're not really sure why. You know, why, why did you pick those and not other aspects of the B conditions? Um, I've written before and I strongly believe that the OFS needs to be much more transparent generally about its approach to investigation, to the process of investigation, to the process of decision making, not least now because it plans to charge everybody from the moment it starts an investigation. And if that decision is is not based on sensible and robust evidence, then why on earth should people be paying um, to to be investigated when there was no need ostensibly? So, we we don't have transparency and we absolutely need it. And it's clear that like DKV, you know, lots of provision will simply be missed in, in this approach. If this is the kind of the main tool that OFS is going to be used, for example, providers that aren't registered or much smaller areas of provision where there is, you know, potentially some greater risks, right? So, I mean, one of the, the interesting things that these reports don't look at, they uh, confine themselves to looking at on-campus students that are registered and taught by the provider. Uh, they don't look at the arrangements for students that are on franchised or uh, partner-led colleges, um, courses that are awarded by the provider in question, even though they might be in the same subject. Now, the reason for this, I think, is that is because that would involve dealing with a different part of the university. It would involve dealing with the university centrally, their quality office, their processes, dealing that with that kind of thing. Uh, it appears from these reports that they want to stick as close to the ground, as close to the actual student experience as they possibly can. Now, in some ways, that is commendable, that it is really good to see the um, regulator actually um, getting in there at the chalk face and understanding what students are dealing with and where the problems are. You have to respect that. And you have to respect the fact that the they've clearly learned a lot from this experience. So, well, there's lots of moments in the reports where you see the scales are dropping from their eyes and they're thinking, oh, yeah, so this is what people do. This is how this works. These are the problems that they're... Uh these are the problems that they're facing. Uh, the issue, as always, really is data. Um, a lot of what they call regulator intelligence comes from data, but this is data from different time periods. If they're interested in student outcomes, then this is data with a substantial time lag on, like the, the um, data that might have flagged regulatory interest probably relates to students who started the course about six years ago. Um, and the, the, um, I mean, the, 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 
um, this is a, re- a a real problem because uh, courses change so fast because academic staff move on because um, universities are, um, are reorganized seemingly every three years according to some ancient law. Um, so we have all of this uncertainty going on. We also have the issue of um, the level in which they're at. Now, at certain points, they drill down to individual courses and say, okay, these courses, there was one in one of the reports, I forget which, that said that this is a course in which the majority of people, the, um, the, the majority of students entering the course do not have UCAS uh, tariff points. So on one level, that's fair enough. That's the kind of course it is. Maybe this is students coming in via a foundation year. Maybe this is a course particularly targeted at mature students who have got different experiences and and different skills that they want to recognize. But on the other hand, if you look at these exact same courses on uh, Discover Uni, which is a website in which you can look up individual actual courses, uh, you can see that the majority of students actually do have UCAS tariff points. And I mean, I mean, maybe that's changed over the intervening period, but it doesn't exactly make the report look um, especially authoritative or useful. So, um, as I mean, I, I guess here we go back to the IRC report. And one of the central criticisms of the RFS reports to regulation was about transparency and was about the sense that uh, providers are less likely to talk to the regulator about problems as they are first perceived because their perception is that they're just going to get punished. They're just uh, going to get uh, pilloried. They're going to be um, named and shamed. And that's going to cause a whole lot of uh, bigger problems. So in terms of regulatory intelligence, the best possible thing that could happen is for the Office of Students to have regular, substantial, off-the-record conversations with every provider it regulates. Like reading through, um, I think David Phoenix's blog on on this was really interesting, and it just seems to me that um, it's the process which is a bit of the issue rather than the assessments themselves in terms of how long it takes, how public they are, the communications engagement from the OFS, what DK was just talking about in terms of transparency. And even now, once these assessments have been published, there's still no indication of what regulatory action there's going to be, which must sort of create a huge amount of level of uncertainty across that whole institution, even if it's just for specific courses. I actually think that, you know, going through the, the assessments and obviously what David's point around um, actually how welcome he was around the assessors and sort of, you know, how useful that process was in some respects when they're on the ground was really interesting to hear. Mm. But it's but it's clearly that the challenges and the issues back to the IFS is how this whole system is managed. Mm. And that's an area, meter, isn't it, that, you know, it's, it's got to be clarified if this is going to continue like this. It can't just be random investigations turning up for reasons that no one knows why. Absolutely. And, and I think also um, what would be really helpful, and this follows on from what both David and Richard have said, um, what what is our priority here? So I want to just give the analogy of the Charity Commission. So the Charity Commission is not a body that I would normally hold up and say how fabulous, but one of the things it does is with its reportable events process, its priority is to assess how is the provider responding to the problems that it's found. Um, and as long as the provider is responding well, the Charity Commission basically says, fine, you know, we know things go wrong, you're putting it right. With this approach, what is it that we really want from these providers? Um, the regulatory action is all about punishment, really, or basically tackling providers who won't fix things themselves, you know, a specific condition of registration or limitation on recruitment, 
that kind of thing, or actual punishment, mm. fines. Now, most providers, I'm sure, will be saying, well, yes, we know these courses aren't going quite as well as we expected them to. And here's all the stuff we're already doing to try and put it right. In that position, what is the benefit of any further enforcement action other than some kind of idea that the only way you regulate is by pe beating people over the head with a big stick? And that's not really helpful to anyone. So that's my, my question is, you know, where providers can say, yes, we know there are problems, here's an action plan. Why are we even going through this process? Why yeah. are we spending any effort on it at all? We should just go, fine. If you implement the action plan, that's fine. If you don't, then we'll take some action against you. Yeah, and 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 I mean, there's a contradictions elsewhere, isn't there, DK? Like, as Mita said, what you know, what happens if um you get one of these, but also you know, good score in, in the TEF? And absolutely fascinatingly, Bolton has broken its broken the embargo on the TEF results uh, today, putting out that it's it's got a, a silver award um and a, and was it is it a gold for student experience? But at the same time, uh, RFS on the same day publishing yeah. that it's got uh, you know areas of concern. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened. This is a story in, I think it was the Bolton News, that suggested that the University of Bolton was thinking of changing its name to the University of Greater Manchester, and in that it casually breached the TEF embargo by saying provisionally it had been in, awarded a goal for student experience. And obviously, yeah, as you say, on the same day, it gets this tap down, which is not really about the student experience. It's mm. primarily about the fact that they haven't got enough staff to offer the student experience that they're trying to offer there's a lot of evidence in that report about some really good support structures some really good supporting work that they're trying to put in place but they've not got the capacity to do it which i feel like is something that is happening up and down the country in providers the systems are there the idea is the, the ideas are there the resource is not so uh this points the fact that we have uh differing parts of the alleged uh, quality system coming up with different results points to the fact that we don't still we still don't really know what we're looking at when it comes to quality we look at a lot of the time and in the TEF as well as a lot of stuff from the national student survey uh in regulatory terms we look at a slightly different set of indicators now it's supposed to be um it's supposed to be a baseline and then above threshold approach quite how that works in practice and quite what students actually get out of the TEF as opposed to stuff like league tables or indeed Discover Uni, as we mentioned, is yet to be explored. It is a mess. It does need to be really addressed. Um, we could be a lot clearer about what each institution is um, doing, what it's like to study there, and we could offer a lot more useful information. The IRC recommended that students might be more interested in the total cost of studying at a university, which is something that is quite difficult to find out until you're actually quite a long way down the road of applying. And that that perhaps might be more useful than the fact that quite a lot of students that have come from a deprived area don't immediately go on to get spectacular um, graduate jobs immediately after graduating. I think, though, that, that you know, going through the assessments, um, they're clearly a useful exercise in some respects. And once the process has concluded, I would argue, should be public. So, for example, one of the findings in the Bolton one around academic support was a really interesting observation that there is good academic support for a certain course for foundation years where progression is strong, but less so for future years. Now, if you're a student or a parent of a student particularly going on to that particular course, then that sort of information I think you would want to know about and want to know how that institution might be trying to tackle that. 
despite the fact that overall, in many other courses within that institution, as, as the TEF results show, they've, they've got a very strong offer. But it's, it's completely random, Richard, what courses they've picked. So if you go back to the rationale for business and management and, and computer science and so on, they're, high, they're courses that have grown in numbers. I think the other issue with that is how many parents and students are actually going to read the details of these reports or even understand them. You know, but, well, they're two- not, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be, you know, that A, there shouldn't be a public element of that, but not in a way where the whole process is seen as overly hostile. It clearly should be Agreed. done yeah, in, in a way which you're trying to improve yeah. quality. Now, yeah. calling it an investigation and making it sort of something as part of the sort of really strong regulatory arm rather than something where you're trying to co-produce something, actually improve quality, uh, you know, there's obviously a, the right balance to get there. But, but, but clearly, um, you, know, you're, you know, an approach which is sort of independent of the institution trying to improve quality, which is public at the outcomes of something, um, which will, you know, hopefully a stick and a carrot to, imp- to, in- to ensure those courses where there are concerns can shift on quality and, and improve and and uh, and so on. I think is, is is something which should be supported. It doesn't obviously have to be done in the process that is currently done in. I know, and, and the irony is what you're describing is largely um, what we had in the quality assurance system, which could have been tweaked. Now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with Mike Ratcliffe. We know about the polytechnics that were designated between 1969 and 1992. A section of the media is obsessed with them, but. That was for a period much shorter than those institutions have now become universities. But the government didn't conjure this concept of polytechnics out of the thin air. It was part of a long tradition. There were two main waves of what we now think of as technical education in the 19th century. The first was mechanics institutes or the courses of lit and film societies in the 1920s and 30s, uh, in the 1820s and 30s, but the latter wave came from local authority action. In London, Quentin Hogg took over the building of the Royal Polytechnic Institution, which had been an educational attraction, to deliver more course-baked work, and he kept the name Polytechnic. As the notion of technical education developed, all those famous concerns about the Germans being better at it, there was a happy combination of funds and organisation. The first batch of funds came from London parishes. They um, no longer needed the the funds, and they were deployed for technical education purposes. The second batch was a national fund, where a rate, a local rate, was applied to alcohol sales, which could be used for education. So funding came from redundant churches and whisky money. The organisational change in London was led by the new London County Council, which had a technical education board run by Sydney Webb. The TEB confirmed a network of London Polytechnic supporting those that had emerged, such as Hogs Regent Street Poly, and promoting new ones. The network became organised with the London Polytechnic Council allocating funds and, or- and coordinating policy. So as a picture of the diversity of provision that you got from these polytechnics, in 1895, here are some of the staff that the South Western Polytechnic is employing. It has an instructor in pattern making, one in plumbing, one in brickwork and masonry, one in plastering, one in painting and decorating. But it also has lecturers in political economy and in English. We can find the person working in wood carving and metalwork alongside the instructor in gymnastics. What's interesting from the list collected at at the um, Polytechnic Council is we get to see how much they're being paid. Now, I don't know what the hours were, and it may be that the difference between the rates of pay is because they were being employed on different amounts. But you can see that the standard rate is £80 a year for an instructor in, say, brickwork and masonry. And this jumps up to uh, a staggering £130 for the instructor in gymnastics for men. The instructress in gymnastics for women only gets £50. 
maybe they're just doing less hours. The council collects all this information because it's allocating funds. So we know that the Southwestern Polytechnic had £3,525 in staff costs, £1,200 in maintenance, i.e. You know, all the bits that you needed to run the place, including £280 for coals, water and lighting, and the London Polytechnic Council provided £1,750 to help support them. We find this coordinating work continues. The council had a special meeting just to consider whether or not it should have a policy on whether the polytechnic should be used or their space should be used for political denomination or denominational or sectarian purposes. They'd received a memo. The original charitable money having come from the, from the London parishes, there was a concern that they were going to be used for church meetings, not from the Church of England, and therefore could they be used for this purpose. They had a long meeting to discuss this, and in the end decided that they weren't going to take a position on this. So, freedom of speech, who can book your rooms in a polytechnic, this was a live issue in the 1890s. So these polytechnics develop over London. They spread out, there's a spatial planning uh, attempt, they get developed in, in local areas, and they have this interesting mix of different activities. Yes, there's the educational side, there's day courses, there's evening courses, but there's entertainments as well. Northampton Institute, comes with a large concert hall with a, a venue in it with choir rooms below for people to get ready and it also comes with a swimming pool there's a, a, a range of activities and these things get spread around and these are the the foundations of lots of the higher education we have now so three of those uh, polys become um, uh, colleges of advanced te technology the southwestern becomes chelsea uh, northampton institute becomes city uh, and battersea policy up Ups, uh, ups and goes uh, off to Surrey. Some of the polys, we can see the buildings still left behind, but they've now been moved off. So we no, no longer have the Kilburn Polytechnic and we no longer have Northern Polytechnic. You can see their buildings fantastic as they were, but they laid a foundation for both technical and higher education in London in the 20s. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST century right there's a new report out into care experience students smita walk us through it please uh so thanks mark so uh, as you say uh, civitas has produced a new report which is about university entry rates uh, amongst care experience students 
Um, and this starts from the premise that there's a very large gap in access rates between this cohort and their peers. Um, and that's despite the fact that in terms of outcomes, the outcomes for care experienced students versus their peers is, is reasonably positive. They're very similar. So, for example, there's only a 2.5% earnings gap between care experienced people and their non-care uh, peers and similarly around employment rates, etc., um, so the, the report, I think, is exploring a really important area. Um, of course, there's a league table because there always has to be about how universities are doing in admitting uh, care experience students. And as the report recognises, we are dealing with relatively small numbers, but the, the small numbers are themselves striking. Uh, so in terms of acceptance to high tariff institutions in particular, at 32 high tariff universities in England, only 90, 90 care leavers under the age of 19 started an undergraduate course in 2021 to 22. So that's a really arresting statistic. Um, care leavers are also half as likely to go to university compared to children growing up in the poorest fifth of households or children entitled to um, free, free school meals. Again, quite alarming um, statistics. So the report makes a number of recommendations. Uh, it talks about uh, adopting a quality mark system um, from the National Network of Education for Care Leavers. Uh, it talks about England introducing a National Care Leaver Scholarship, pointing to the success of something that Scotland has already done in its care experience bursary, uh, which um, improved participation to the extent of tripling access uh, in the six years between 2016 and 2022. Um, other recommendations were about better data on what care experience leavers are doing after GCSEs. And what I thought was a rather striking recommendation around using spare space in, in boarding schools, uh, which has apparently been trialled already with some success, but which I note yesterday on Twitter triggered a little bit of discussion about its appropriateness. Mm. I just wanted to finish with a, a just an anecdote, actually, uh, which was I took my younger son to a high tariff university recently and we were being shown around accommodation and one of the student ambassadors, really confident and inspiring young man, told us that he was care experienced and talked about how he'd been supported at that university. And what really struck me about that conversation and this report was that underpinning all of this, I think, is what holds most people back is our stereotypes and our prejudices about what care experienced people are capable of. And we really do need to let them unlock their potential in the ways described in this report. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. Um, I mean, Richard, there's clearly um, a lot to unpick here and, and a lot, I think, for the sector to get its head around. One of the things that, that instinctively kind of sends a red flag to me, though, is when the Times starts talking about getting people, of, of any sort of people, of any sort of background into uh, its words of leading universities and this, this, whole question of, um, this whole question of tariffs. Who's to say that a high tariff university is better for a care experienced student, for a care experienced student than a low tariff university? How is that a useful indication of anything about the success of anyone anywhere? It just doesn't. It just feels to me like um, kind of perverse on an individual level. You know, why is you know why would going to Oxford necessarily be better than you know going somewhere perhaps that might even have a bit more direct support or might be a bit more local to you or you know all sorts of all sorts of things. Um, well, I suppose that you know that that is obviously based on the perceived hierarchy of the system that's been in in there for hundreds of years, or or, or, or at least two hundred years. Um, and uh, I suppose it, it comes down to whether you think you can change that 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 system and the hierarchy of the perception of that system, or you work with it. Um, I think that whatever you think of of that, clearly high tariff. In, you know, the fact that there's so few 
care experience students go to high tech at those institutions is something which is should be noted and is a mark against them in in my opinion um i'd also just like to refer to the the recommendation on the NECL quality mark so you know um that, that's something which the UPP Foundation supported and, and we helped fund to, to get it off the ground. And it's brilliant that 30 odd institutions have now got quality mark status. Completely endorse the point in the report that there's no point in the government trying to replicate a kite mark for care experience students and that they should try and adopt the, the NECL quality mark, um, which is a really rigorous piece of work assessing sort of the whole student life cycle journey for, for a care experience student. And I would encourage any institution that is thinking about this to, to go through that quality mark status if they if they haven't already it'll be hugely useful for you in terms of your access and your you know your progression plans and you know your graduate outcomes for care experience students and so on um and so i think there's some really good stuff in this report i think obviously it you know as mark you've just alluded to it sort of um it follows the often the tropes of the he sector and there's a sort of interesting piece by frank young the author in capex which sort of um, is clearly speaking to the current government on, on ways in which to, to, to reform the system um, rather than the sort of sector itself. Uh, but there's there's good stuff in there and I, and I hope this government or the future government and, and the sector can can take this issue on and, and take on some of those recommendations. I think, you know, the idea around bursary or scholarship for care experience students is a really interesting one. I think NECL itself, the National Network for the Education of Care Leavers, um, is a really important organisation. The former chair of the UPP Foundation, who was formerly at UPP, John Wakeford, has just become the co-chair of NECL. So just to put my hands up there, uh, as John's a friend of mine, but I, I think that um, you know these sort of networks within the sector that can help practice within different um, professionals in higher education are really vital and really important. But with the sort of declining unit resource for institutions, it's quite hard to pay for these membership bodies, right? So, you know, something which the government could do, you know, a small amount of money for these organisations, 100,000, 200,000 or whatever, could make a transformative difference around around that body, how they support universities, think about the key issues that care experienced students face. And so you can actually do with that scholarship idea, with the quality mark and so on, I think transformative things for relatively small pots of money. Okay, so that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Smita, Richard, DK and Michael who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.